0: So last weekend, uh, Sean and I were at our neighborhood pool, which we've been trying to do a little more often lately because we're tired of being in the house. And what else are you going to do when it's 147 degrees outside, right? So we've been hanging out a little bit at the pool, and we were there. uh, We've been there a few times here recently, but uh, this was last weekend, last Saturday. And while we were there, we ran into actually a couple of our Gateway families while uh, we were hanging out, and one of them in particular... Uh, just kind of caught my attention. And you all have seen this scene play out many, many times. And if you've had kids, you, you probably have, have gone through this exact same thing with your own kids. So dad is in the water. Little three-year-old kid is on the edge of the pool. You know how this works, right? And the kid's standing there like this, and he's, and he's scared to death. and He's not sure what to do, and, and, and what's dad doing? Dad's saying, come on, jump, I got you. You know, this whole, you, you've seen this play out, you've been there. And, and it was just hard to get him to go. And so we were watching this, and I'm just thinking as I'm watching this, I'm thinking, man, what a beautiful picture of what faith is, right? I mean, we have a father who's there ready to catch us. And all that. But that's really not the primary direction I want to go today. I, I was thinking about that story because more because of a conversation we had afterwards. So afterwards, we're you know, just kind of in the pool and chatting a little bit. And, and Dad told me this. He said, you know... Uh, I was talking with someone recently and kind of, you know, kind of joking, but kind of not. He said, having a young child, having a three-year-old, to me, it just proves original sin. And he said, you know, it just proves that we have a sinful nature in us because with little kids, and this is true, right? Little kids, you don't have to teach them to be selfish. I mean, the, the essence of sin is really wanting what I want for myself. And we are born with that desire. You have to teach a child to share. You don't have to teach them to say mine. I don't know how they pick that up. Somehow it's born into them, but they want what they want for themselves, right? This is mine. You leave me alone. I'm going to take it for me. And we were just kind of laughing about that a little bit. But also there's a lot of truth to that. Because we are just geared because of our sinful nature. We are just geared toward selfishness. We're geared toward wanting to do whatever is necessary to please me and to satisfy my desires. And so today as we continue on in the book of Hebrews, we've been going through this study. And actually one more week uh, we will finish in Hebrews 13 next Sunday. Uh, But Hebrews 12, we're going to finish the second part of Hebrews 12 today. And as we start in verse 14... I just want you to listen for that God's call to move away from our own desires and you know, our, our, our sinful cravings that we have of just what I want for me towards something greater than that. Starting in verse 14, it says, Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rice as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, he, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. And we're going to stop there for a moment and talk about this because there's a lot of stuff here. But right at the beginning of verse 14, we see this theme that just, I mean, it just snakes its way throughout Scripture kind of like the Brazos River running through central Texas. I mean, it's just, if you ever had an aerial view of that, we had that not too long ago. I was like, wow, I've never seen it from up here. It's kind of cool to see how that works. But that's the way this this dual theme runs throughout Scripture. And it's this theme of right relationship with God and right relationship with other people. It says that, that, that we're to make every effort to live in peace with other people And to be holy because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And so both of those are equally important in Scripture. And, you know, I was on a a Zoom call, I guess it was last week, with, uh, I I kind of piggybacked with some other churches, but the the main, really, it was just an observation more than anything. We watched two people have a conversation, and the two people were Tony Evans, who's pastor of a mostly African-American church in South Dallas area, and then a guy by the name of Dr. Bach, Daryl Bach, who is a white theology professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. And they, the, the point of this call was they were having a conversation about so many of the issues that we're experiencing right now, race relations, and what is the church's responsibility, and how should we respond. And it was a fascinating conversation to listen to. Uh, very insightful, both from a... And that's one of the things I love about this, by the way, is this whole conversation was biblically oriented Uh, ...and rooted in Scripture and what should our response be based on what we see in Scripture. And and that, by the way, when it comes to the issues that we are dealing with today... ...whatever those issues may be, but in particular, one of them that is uh, heightened on the radar right now... ...is race relations and how do we respond and what needs to be done. Let me just urge you as strongly as I possibly can to root your, your beliefs and your responses in Scripture... Not in a political party, not in somebody who agrees with you, and I 'm just going to fill myself with that but it, and by the way, that goes on both sides what, whatever political side you may be on, to root our 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 understanding our beliefs in scripture is so very important but but listening to that conversation was so insightful because uh, part of what I gathered from listening to Dr. Evans, who has a different perspective, having grown up as an you know an african American and he's Probably, I don't know, 15 years older than me, and so he grew up in a time uh, when he was younger, where he experienced some things uh, that even I didn't in my generation. But just listening him talk about that, but this, there are a lot of takeaways, and I could tell you about a lot of those little nuggets that I took away from it. But here was one of them that really stuck with me more than anything, was this idea that he had brought up that, that, that justice and righteousness are these two equally important themes in Scripture. Both of them are, are incredibly important. And yet, and, and, and I say that because it was interesting after coming off that conversation, this has been on my mind and I read verse 14. I'm like, there it is again, you know, live at peace with people and uh, be holy. But justice and righteousness, both of them. Uh, but, but here's what he said and it, and it was like, man, this just really was convicting to me. He said, in most predominantly white churches, the emphasis is almost solely on righteousness and very little on justice. And that's true. You stop and think about it. And he made a great point, too. He said, the one just, you know what the one justice issue that most white churches feel passionately about? It's abortion. That's the one issue. And it should be. It's an important issue. But that is a justice issue. And most predominantly white churches are like, yeah, we're all on board with that. You know, we want to protect unborn. We want to do what we can. We should. That's, that's valuable. It's important. But everything else, he said, kind of gets pushed to the side and it's, it's less important. I thought, yep, that's, there's a lot of truth to that. So opening this, this passage and, and starting there, um, for me, it, just, it was a reminder of the importance of our role and, and just responding from a biblical standpoint. And by the way, let me say this too. There's a lot of craziness going on when it comes to how to respond to this issue on both sides. There's a lot of just silly stuff out there happening right now. But don't let the silliness for whatever side you find yourself on and go, oh, well, see, this is what the other side is like. So I'm going to totally write them off. I'm not going to have a conversation. I'm not going to consider anything. And that's the danger that we have. Yes, we should ignore the silliness and it needs to be dealt with. But there's still an issue that needs to be addressed that's underlying beneath that as well. So that's this whole beginning here. Live in peace with everyone but also make this this effort to be holy. So how do you do that? Here's the first thing is that we have to depend on God's grace. Verse 15 says, see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. If we are attempting to do this in our own effort, or one of the, the main issues in the book of Hebrews, as you recall, was people attempting to follow the law and the law making them right before god and so the thought was that if i can do everything as god says i should do it then i'll be okay and it's kind of this self-justification kind of thing and, and, and the book of hebrews is very clear we can't do that that's the whole point of you know the sacrifice and the previous chapters we won't go back over all that but the, you know the one sacrifice the once for all sacrifice and jesus and all that uh but that's that's grace we have to depend on God's grace. And we have to depend on God's grace when it comes to right relationship with God. When it says without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See, here's the bottom line is that we are not holy. We are, to, to, to be holy means to be in, in, in right relationship with God. It means that, that there is, there's not something keeping us from being able to connect with God in a right way we're not holy on our own. We're we're sinful people. We fall short of God's standard. And so we require the grace of God in order to live in right relationship with God. And we need to be reminded of that regularly and come back to that and fall on that grace that God has for us. But isn't it also true that we desperately need the grace of God when it comes to living at peace with all people? Because our tendency is when something is not right, then we, you know, if we've been treated wrongly is to want to give it back, right? You, you hurt me, I hurt you back. One of the, the very specific ways that we can respond with God's grace is that when we are hurt is not to return that. You know, Jesus talked about that, didn't he? He talked about turning the other cheek. That doesn't mean that you just allow yourself to get trampled on, that you have no boundaries, but it does mean that inwardly, we refuse that temptation to, man, I'm just going to lash out and I'm going I'm to you know, get back at you. Uh, th- there is a proverb that we come back to frequently in our household because it's an important one. It's Proverbs 15.1. Test your, your, your Bible scholar here. Is it up? Oh Nope. Yep, there we go. I was going to ask if you knew what it said. Make sure it wasn't on the screen yet, but here it is. If you don't know this proverb, you need to memorize this one. Maybe put it up in the house somewhere. A gentle answer turns away wrath but a harsh word stirs up anger. Such a, a simple little statement, but there's so much wisdom to that. And, and isn't that true that a, so often just a gentle answer, which I would associate a gentle answer with being an expression of God's grace. If we answer gently, that is one way, a practical way that we can express the grace of God to one another. Uh, but it's amazing just the practical benefit that comes from that. And the flip side to that, if you fire back, you know, when you've been fired at, then now we're on and, you know, it's just leads down a path. It's, it's not a good path. So we need God's grace. We need it in right, relating rightly to one another. We need it in relating in a, in a right way to God too. And, And this idea of holiness, you know, think of holiness in terms of being able to walk in right relationship with God because you know, it's possible for us, and there's a reason why even believers, and stop thinking about this for a minute, even believers are instructed to be holy. And we might ask the question, well, wait a minute. You know, don't I take on the righteousness of Christ? And absolutely we do. Otherwise, we're sunk. Because we are not able to measure up to God's standard. So we're not holy in and of ourselves. So there's that sense in which we are fully dependent on the grace of God, as we talked about a moment ago, but then we are also instructed to live holy lives, which means that that we remove anything as a believer that would get in the way of us having a close, right connection with God. So I've depended on the grace of God, but I also have a responsibility to root out some of these things that would keep me from, from being able to... Uh, to relate to God in a proper way. And that's why it says don't fall short of God's grace. So what's the flip side to that? If what we're supposed to do is not to fall short of God's grace, what happens if we do fall short of God's grace? What happens if we don't lean on that? Let's keep reading verse 15. It says, see that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. This idea of a bitter root. That is what can happen when we are not living out of the grace of God. So here's the second idea for today is get rid of bitter roots. We need to get rid of the bitter roots in our lives. See, the thing about roots, and I love that that word and that idea, that visual, because a root is something that grows beneath the surface, right? A root is something that you don't even see developing most of the time. Most of the time, the only only time you know when a root is in place is when something pops up above the, the level of the surface. I always think about springtime. You know, it doesn't matter to me. It seems like whatever pre-emergent I try to do, it never works right. I still have those darn weeds coming up in the early spring. And the crazy thing is you pick up a weed that's this big and you pull it up out of the ground and the root's about three times as long, right? It's like, man, that root system has been growing beneath the surface for all this time, and I didn't even realize it was there, and that's what the pre-emergence is supposed to do, right? It's supposed to kill it before it ever grows. And maybe y'all can give me some instructions on how to make that work better. It just doesn't seem to do its job for me like I want it to. But we need to be very mindful and very aware that there can be this root of bitterness that grows beneath the surface. Maybe nobody else sees it, nobody else notices it, But we have to be aware to say, okay, let's look a little bit down, a little bit deeper. Let's see, is there something deep down this root of bitterness in my life? And I would ask you that question today. Is there a root of bitterness that is growing somewhere beneath the surface? Because the problem is this. Eventually, if it's not dealt with, a bitter root will produce bitter fruit. It's going to happen if we don't deal with it and so he's talking about getting rid of this and 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 dealing with i mean there's so many different things that could cause bitterness in our lives and i think this is something to really stop and evaluate am i bitter am i bitter about my spouse am I bitter about my life and think that I haven't been given the same opportunity as somebody else has am I bitter that I got passed over for a promotion am I bitter that my kids have turned out the way they have and not like somebody else's am I bitter about my financial condition compared? I mean you could just we could just go on and on and on and on right it's so easy to allow this root of bitterness to grow up in our lives. Uh, And and it says that when that happens, it can cause trouble and defile many. And then look, it's very interesting to me that the next thing that he goes into in verse 16, because what a root of bitterness does is it turns us inward and it makes us say, I have the right to do whatever I want because I've become bitter about this. I don't care what God says. I don't care what anybody else says. I'm going to do what I want for me in verse 16. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau. Now, we'll come back and talk about Esau in a minute. There's a fantastic connection between this idea of sexual morality and Esau that we'll we'll get to in just a moment. But isn't that interesting that that is the specific application that he goes to after talking about this issue of bitterness? And I thought, man, you know, there's so many things in Scripture that we see that are still such an applicable thing for us today. And this is certainly one of them. We, we live in a culture where sexual immorality is not just tolerated, it's celebrated, really. It's expected as a single person. If you're a single person waiting for marriage and you're wanting to, to maintain that purity, that is a difficult thing to do. And you're surrounded by people who are not doing that and are very open about not doing that. And, and you feel this pressure. And by the way, you're not the only one who is maintaining your purity. It feels like that at times, I'm sure. You're really not. But you are surrounded by a lot of pressure. As a married person, it doesn't go away. So easy to get involved in extramarital affairs and relationships and and things like that. And even if it's not physical involvement, Jesus defined this very clearly, right? Said if anyone looks on a woman lustfully, he's committed adultery with her in his heart. So anything, that uh, mental issues, pornography, self-gratification, whatever it may be, there's so many Paths that a person can go down that fit under this broad category of sexual immorality. And by the way, I saw one the other day that uh, was, was kind of a, a new thing to me that I wasn't aware of until I read this little article. Uh, there is a little town outside of Boston, some of you may have read about this, called Somerville, Massachusetts, became the first city, as far as anyone knows, to grant um, the same status of marital relationships to what's called polyamorous relationships. If you don't know what polyamory is, that's where there's more than two partners involved in a romantic relationship. And they may live all together, and there could be three or four of them, or whatever it may be, and now they've come out and said, we're going to grant the same status, and you're the same as a married family when this is happening. I'm thinking, man, we invent new ways and new definitions for what sexual immorality looks like in our culture uh, and then we celebrate it. But then he goes into talking about Esau. And the question may be, okay, how do you jump from talking about sexual morality to talking about Esau giving up his birthright? And what is the connection there? And I love this connection. Let, let's go back and just revisit the story real quick. Esau had a brother named Jacob. And Jacob was, was, you know, he knew how to work the system a little bit. His name means deceiver. And it actually, he did that a few times. But let's read about one of them. Genesis 25. 29 through 34 says, Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, Quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That is why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied first, Sell me your birthright. See, Esau had come out first. They were twins, but he had come out first, so he had the rights as the firstborn. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is a birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank, and then he got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. Now you can see that God is very upset about this. What's the real issue here? That Esau despised his birthright, what it's saying is, He was so focused on fulfilling this desire that he had that he didn't care what it cost. And that's the connection between sexual immorality and what's going on with Esau. It's this, man, I feel this desire. I feel this urge. You ever been starving like that for food or for that matter, for sexual desire, whatever it may be. And it's like, I've I've got I've got to meet this need. I've got to have it right now. And Esau was willing to give up something of great value because he just had to fulfill this desire right now. Here's the third thing that we need to take from this passage today, and that is to resist the urge for immediate satisfaction. It's a big part of the point here. We've got to get to a point where it's not a, hey, I've just got to fulfill whatever desire I have right now. I've got to meet that need. No. That leads to some really bad choices. And here's the problem. The end of that, that little passage that we just read, where it says afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. Notice that. Not what someone else had done to him. He couldn't change what he had done. Here's the thing. Guys, when we, when we do mess up, thankfully God is a God who forgives. God is a God who is able to cleanse us and purify us, whether it is in the, issue, in the area of, of sexual morality or whether it's any other sin in our life. So be encouraged. Don't be discouraged by this. Know that God forgives and he, he gives us through Christ. He gives us the ability to start fresh. And so we can be encouraged in that. But this passage also reminds us that even though God forgives and God wipes clean sometimes there are consequences that last from our decisions. See, the consequence for Esau's decision was, this isn't going to be reversed. When you decided to sell your birthright, you decided to sell your birthright. Now, that doesn't mean that God can't forgive him, and, you know, but there's still consequences there. And this area that we are talking about is one of them, where we certainly see consequences for our actions um, yes there is forgiveness and grace thankfully there is but it will there are consequences that will stick with us too all right let's continue I'm going to move pretty quickly through the, the, the rest of the chapter because really most of this kind of is, is a common theme here verse 18 it says you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness gleaming to a storm to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it beg them that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what, what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. This is a description of what happened when God was about to give the Ten Commandments when he met with Moses on Mount Sinai, and it says that there was lightning and thunder. I mean, this was a terrifying experience, and it said you don't come to the mountain, to the, even the edge of the mountain, don't touch it. If even an animal touches it, the animal has to be put to death. I mean, this is serious stuff, Okay. But here's the point. This this is a picture of the law. We've been talking about this. This is a picture of God's righteousness and God's holiness. And this is without grace. This is what we have. We'll never measure up. It's terrifying. But, But as we continue on, and this is where it gets encouraging, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion. Not to this mountain that we just read about, but to Mount Zion. To the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. To the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to, the God, to God, the judge of all. To the spirits of the righteous, made perfect. To Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See, this is what we have, he's saying. This is the old picture. This is the law and, you know, trying to get there on your own. But because of grace, this is what we have. And this is a party. I mean, this is exciting. You read the the contrast between verses 18 through 21 and then verses 22 through 24. is just remarkable. I mean, he's talking about this thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. I mean, can you just imagine that? You talk about an exciting worship experience, right? Be able to be with thousands upon thousands of angels worshiping. And, and, and not only angels, but it says Jesus himself is, is right there in the middle of all this. You come to Jesus, it says the mediator of a new covenant. That, that's how we get there in the first place. Maybe made me think about 1 Timothy 2.5. It says there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind. And then that's Jesus, the man Jesus Christ. Jesus is this mediator. A medi- what does a mediator do? A mediator takes two parties that aren't able to come together and finds a way to bring those two parties together. That's what Jesus has done for us. He took us in our sinfulness, which separated us from the Father, and he said, let me bring these two together because, because as God, he wants relationship with us, but our sin was separating us from him. Jesus is the mediator that through his sacrifice brought us and God together. And so there's so much to be grateful for. Now, our response to that, verse 25. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised once more, I will shake not only the earth, but the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So, how do we worship God appropriately? How do we worship God? with reverence and awe, what is the, the appropriate response to the fact that Jesus has become our mediator, that we are approaching Mount Zion, not Mount Sinai, where the people were terrified and just received the law of God? How do we respond to that? It says at the end of the chapter that we are to worship with reverence and awe. But how do you do that? I will go back to verse 25. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. And this is the last idea, exactly those words. Do not refuse him who speaks. In other words, what God says to us, we receive it and we submit to it. We apply it to our lives. Have you ever refused someone who spoke to you? And later on maybe wished that you hadn't? As a child, parents maybe gave you good advice, but no, I don't need that. I don't want to listen to that. I don't want to hear that. Maybe there's a boss that was giving you instruction in a certain area. It's like, I don't want to go there. I don't want to do that. I'm sure we can all think of examples of times where we have refused someone who spoke and we later realize that probably wasn't a good idea. Well, if it's a bad idea to refuse somebody earthly who's giving good advice, and this is the point that it makes, my goodness, what, how much worse is it if we refuse the one who speaks from heaven? If we refuse the voice of God himself who is speaking to us and saying, this is what I want you. This is the direction that I want you to go. Um, You know, I'm quite sure that God is speaking very clearly to many of us right now about certain things. Maybe it's something specific through this message. Maybe it's something that God's been speaking to you about uh, over a period of weeks or months. And you know the direction God wants you to go. But when we don't do it, we are refusing Him who speaks. And so the appropriate response, the appropriate worship is to say, okay, God, Whatever it is that you're leading me to do, whatever that next step looks like, I'm going to take it. I'm going to follow you in faith. I'm going to follow you in obedience. And that's my challenge for you today. That's my encouragement for you today. Whatever it is that God is saying to you, don't refuse him who speaks. And if God is saying to you, I want relationship with you. I want you to to give your heart to me today. If God is saying, I want you to follow me in this step of obedience, in this ministry, in this whatever it is, I just want to encourage you today to... To respond in faith and to say, yes, Lord, whatever you're saying, I'm going to obey that. Let's pray. Lord, today we ask that you would give us the heart, the faith, and the ears to hear so that when you speak, we can follow you in obedience and in trust and in faith. Lord, I pray for somebody today maybe that needs to take that initial step of faith to trust in you, Lord Jesus, to give their heart to you for the first time, to turn away from sin and trust in you. Lord, Lord, for that believer that has been hearing your voice, but just really not acting on it, I pray that today is the day that they take a step forward and not refuse you as you speak, Lord. And We thank you and we submit to you today. In Jesus' name, amen.